And if the rest of you who are able would please stand with me as we listen to God's word. Our reading this morning is from Colossians 2, verses 11 to 23. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we already have received your grace in the forms of the songs that we have sung, in the simple opportunity we've had to pray and know that you hear us. And Lord, remembering once again that you are a God who loves us and delights to give good things to us, we ask that you would bless us by enabling us to hear your word. You would bless us by drawing us nearer to Jesus and making us more whole. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are now about halfway through our series on Colossians, a series that I've said is meant to drive us forward in growth. It is very much about how we grow. There is this view, I think, throughout the Bible, but especially in Colossians, that God has created us to be a certain person, someone who's beautiful and full and complete. And Colossians invites us into that fullness by growing in Christ. And this morning we come to, I think, one of the most important distinctions in all of Scripture that I can think of. A distinction that is literally life-changing when we come to understand it. And that's the distinction between Christianity and religion. Now, understanding this distinction can be the difference 
between anxiety being the way that our lives are shaped or gratitude. Uh, the difference between feeling, on one hand, sometimes arrogant, or on the other hand, self-loathing, and a peaceful humility. Uh, between defensiveness and, and condescension towards others and an open, welcome love. There are people, countless people, who go throughout their lives not knowing this distinction between Christianity and religion. And their lives are significantly poor because of it. Now, before you start getting confused and saying, well, wait a second, if I define religion according to the way that the, the definition of the, you know, the dictionary, this doesn't make sense, I want you to say, I'm not speaking of religion in the technical way. I'm speaking of religion in the way that most people think of religion, the way that um, Tim Keller has a chapter on reason for God about this that I find incredibly helpful. And the way he speaks of it, I think, is generally the way most people think of religion. That is, that it is a set of, of rituals and behaviors that people engage in to try to move towards God. Or, or if the religion doesn't believe in a personal God, towards transcendence or, or towards fulfillment. Virtually every religion has this understanding that we are meant to work our way up to God in some fashion. So if you think of some of the world religions, Islam, we get closer to God through, through certain prayers five times a day, through fasting. With, with Hinduism, there's this karma of re, with reincarnation of moving upwards. With Zen Buddhism, even though there's not a personal God, there's this sense that we, as we relinquish things, we move towards transcendence, we're moving our way up. Even things that we don't necessarily even think of as religions, like secularism, which really is a, a religion in its own right, its God is happiness and fulfillment. And we get there by making good choices, working hard. We're, we're climbing our way up. Some misunderstandings of Christianity sees this similarly, that Christianity is simply about following Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we move our way towards God. We're, we're working our way up. Now, that is not what the Christian gospel actually is. But it is kind of the religious understanding of now, each of these religions, all religions really, because they have this idea of moving our way up, has a shared understanding about who or what we are. And that is there is some piece of us, some part of us, that's capable of navigating our way up to God. Maybe it's our rationality, that if we can see things rightly and let go of things, we experience Zen. Or maybe it's our willpower. If we really try hard and work hard, then we will move our way up. Or maybe it's our, our gut, that if we really listen to our heart, our desire, we will find happiness. Whatever it is, there has got to be some part of us that has that divine spark, that capacity to move ourselves to God. Because if we don't, then their whole religious enterprise is empty, right? You need somehow to find some part of you that if you understand things rightly, can work your way up. But what if that part doesn't exist? What if the gap between you and God is just utterly insurmountable? What if the, the brokenness that we all are aware of, we know that we're not the way that we should, but what if that goes all the way down 
so that there is not any part of us left that is capable of navigating ourselves in the right direction. And that's precisely what Christianity says. And if you think about it, if that's the case, if there is no part whatsoever, then the religious enterprise is empty. It is promising something that we are utterly incapable of accomplishing. And what the Christian gospel says, and this is the first key difference to help us distinguish Christianity from religion, the Christian gospel says the entire religious enterprise is empty. It is hopeless because the gap between us and God is far greater than we realize. And our brokenness, our sinfulness goes all the way down so that we are utterly incapable of moving our way up. And we see that in our passage this morning. Our passage this morning we see, now I should highlight the first paragraph ultimately is going to be speaking about what Jesus has done, but it does tell us something about ourselves. There are two metaphors that we see describing who or what we are. One of them we see in verse 14, it speaks of us having a record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands. Have you ever experienced overwhelming debt? I'm not talking just about the mortgage debt and the car payment debts that we have to pay every month. That's kind of controlled debt. I'm talking about debt that you have where you are having to pay high interest and the, the feeling of the weight of obligation presses down so that you can barely breathe because you do not know how you're going to pay it back. Where, where your sense of inability gives you a sense of shame. So you're not even wanting to tell anyone about the problem that you have because the debt feels so great. But when you look at it and you can barely breathe, you realize you have no idea how you will possibly ever be able to repay it. Have you ever experienced that? It is soul crushing. And, and scripture says you and I are indebted to God. Have you noticed whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are actually acknowledging that. Forgive us our debts. Because you and I owe God everything. Every aspect of who you are, the things that you enjoy in this world, every breath that you breathe has come from God. And, and we owe to Him because He is our God, our, our gratitude, our worship, our complete obedience, and it's those very things that we do not give our God as He deserves. I mean, Scripture says all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of what He deserves and we are ringing up this incalculably large debt. So big that no matter what we do, even if we were to live in perfect worship and obedience and faithfulness to him from this time forward, we would never be able to compensate for what we've done because anything we do is just what God already deserves. We are in a debt and we have no ability to repay it. And scripture uses another metaphor, not just one of debt, but one of death. Just going back a verse, verse 13 you who were dead. We're dead. It says we're dead in our trespasses. Trespasses literally means a breaking of the law. And so what this is saying is we are under the sentence of death. Romans says the wages of sin is death. We are on death row with no more appeals left, waiting for us to experience the sentence of death. That's what it's saying. 
but it also says we are dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. In other words, death is not just a sentence that is handed down, it's something about who we are, about the very substance of ourselves, our flesh, that there is something broken within, that we are lacking a spiritual pulse, an ability to move ourselves upward. We are dead inwardly. And the key thing about the metaphor of death is it's hopeless. If you are dead, there are no solutions left to you. There is no fixing it. There is no plan that you can hatch to make things better. Dead is dead. And that's what Scripture says. Scripture says we do not have the capacity to move ourselves upward. That the entire religious project is empty because our debt is so great we can never pay it back that we are dead under the sentence of death, that we are hopeless without any ability. Do you see why this is not the same thing as religion? This is the anti-religion. It is declaring to us that any idea of us moving our way upward is empty, is bankrupt, is worthless, because you and I cannot do it. So that's one of the key distinctions between Christianity and religion, but we see a second one that is also in this first paragraph that is so, so important to understand. And that is that what we cannot do, God has done. If if religion says our only hope is for us to move our way upward, the Christian gospel says our hope is that God looked down and knows our complete inability and he has stooped down low in the person of Jesus to bring us back up to himself. Notice what it says has happened to us. If this were religion, what we'd be seeing in this paragraph is saying you are uncircumcised, so circumcise yourself. You are dead, so make yourself alive. You are in debt, so figure out a way to pay it back. But notice, that is not what happens at all. Notice how little we are actually doing, how it's always done. In him, you were circumcised, being put on with, uh, with a circumcision that's made without hands. In other words, nothing that we have done. You have been buried. You have been raised. Again, not us doing it, but it's happening to us. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive. He has canceled the record of debt. All of these things are things that we're not doing. There's only one thing that we're doing here, and that's receiving. That's what faith is. Faith is just the empty hand of taking hold. God does everything to bring us back up to him. And do you notice how he does it? Again, we see this repetition so that we don't miss it. Again and again we see... In him, so in him you are circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. That him is Jesus, having been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were raised with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God. God made you alive together, verse 13, with Jesus, having forgiven all our trespasses. And at the very end it speaks about how he puts the, uh, the demons to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus you see, again and again it's saying, God came down and rescued you by putting you in connection with Jesus. Here, here's what it's saying. For us to truly experience salvation, for us 
to truly be brought to God, we needed something bigger than an attitude change or, or a thinking change. We needed, for lack of a better word, a self change. You and I, apart from Christ, are independently going our own way, doing our own thing. It is you yourself. And you yourself is the one who's racked up that debt. It's you yourself who are spiritually dead. And so what God does is he takes you and he puts off that old self, that independent self, and he gives you a self-change so that you are no longer you alone. You are you with Christ. That's who you are if you are a Christian. You are not just you. You are you with Christ. It is a self-change. And we see this described in a couple of different ways. You have this metaphor here of, of circumcision. In him you are circumcised with a circumcision that's made without flesh. Now that is admittedly kind of a foreign and strange uh, image to us. It wouldn't have been at that time. That was the image in the Old Testament of a sign of God's promise that he was going to take this people and, and, put, and help them to put off their former way and enable them to be his holy people. And that was a promise of something God was going to do, and it's saying, in Jesus, that has happened. And I think probably the, the best contemporary illustration of this um, comes in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, story, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Maybe some of you have read this. There's this character in Voyage of the Dawn Treader um, by the name of Eustace Clarence Scrub. And uh, he's not a particularly nice character at first. He's kind of... In fact, uh, one of my favorite lines by C.S. Lewis is how this whole book begins. There once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> so he was, he's this you know, mean, kind of grumpy, nasty kid. He ends up going to Narnia with Lucy and Edmund, and he hasn't changed. I mean, he still is just really ornery and unpleasant. And at one point, because of his greed, he finds dragon treasure, and he's greedy towards it, and he takes some. And of course, in Narnia, when that happens, you become a dragon. And as he becomes a dragon and as he realizes what happens, it becomes clear that there's something symbolic about this. Because Eustace comes to realize that he's all along been a monster, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And that this is just kind of a visual demonstration of who he is. And so at a certain point, he desires to change, and he decides he's going to change. And so he takes his claws, and he kind of rips off his outer skin. And it's a little bit painful, but it feels good, and he takes it off. And then he realizes right below, there's still the dragon scales. And he does it again, and he does it again. And no matter how many times he does it, he realizes that who he is, the person he doesn't want to be, goes down to the very core of himself. He cannot do it. And then this, this lion appears. And, and if you know the Narnia series, you know that Aslan is, is the Christ figure in this series. And, and Aslan says to him, let me do this for you. And so Eustace Scrub later on when he's telling his friends, here's what he says. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it went right down to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, and I turned into a boy again. Edmund later says that he has been undragoned. 
And what Colossians is saying is that is what happens to you and to me in Christ Jesus. We, no matter how hard we try to rip things down, you and I cannot undragon ourselves. But in Christ, he, he puts off, it says he puts off the flesh, the uncircumcised flesh. He, he removes from us our old selves. And he makes you and me into someone new. You are you with Jesus now. There's a second image that's used right after the one about you being circumcised. It says you've been buried with Jesus in baptism. See, when Jesus came down to earth and when he went to the cross, he didn't just go to the cross by himself. He carried all of us with him. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then when he went to the cross, he carried you, your self, your guilt, everything about you. He carried it with him to the cross, and when he died, it died. And when he was buried, all of that, your guilt, everything that you have carried is buried there with him. That's what it's saying. You've been buried with Jesus. And, and the great thing about that is when you are buried and when you are dead, all of your debts are done. No one who is dead is expected to repay their debts. And that's what it says here in verse 14. It talks about how you've been forgiven by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of our debt was nailed to the cross. We have died with Christ. And it says we have risen with him. You are a new self empowered by Jesus' resurrection power. You are no longer just you. You are you with Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. Do you see how, do you see how this is different from religion? Religion is all about what you have to do. Christianity talks about all that God has done in Christ Jesus. If you understand that you are you with Jesus, then you don't need ever to prove yourself again. Because, because you have the righteousness of Jesus in connection with you, and that's more than enough for you. If you realize that you are you with Jesus, then you don't need to figure out how to draw yourself near to God because you are already with the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus. If you understand that you are you with Jesus, then you don't need to have a plan on your own to figure out how to make yourself the person you want to become because Jesus is there and he is the one who is at work in you. You are not the old person anymore. You are you with Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. If this is, if this is something that you have never seen in this light before. Let me suggest something to you. It could be that the reason that Christianity has never really worked for you, the reason that you've never experienced the, the gratitude or the joy that some people speak of, because you've never understood what Christianity really is. Because you've understood it still as a religion where you are just climbing up the ladder, trying to do the right things, and that's not what it is at all. It's God coming down, stooping low, and bringing you to himself in Christ Jesus. Even if you do see this, even if you have 
taken hold of this and it is a glorious truth to you, let me tell you, our tendency towards religiosity, towards working our way up to God, is so strong that we need to be alert to the constant temptation again and again to slip right back into the patterns of religion. And that's, that's what Paul warns us of in the second half of this passage. We see three different kind of warnings to the Colossians and to us saying, now that this has happened to you, don't go back. You know, it is entirely possible to seek to do good things for God and to do it entirely apart from Jesus where you've left Jesus on the wayside. Right here in, in verses 16 and 17, Paul speaks of a group of people who care deeply about food and drink following kind of kosher laws of the Old Testament, about celebrating the Passover, about celebrating the Sabbath. Now, these are things the Bible speaks of in the Old Testament, which means they're trying to do something because they think it's pleasing to God. But Paul says all of those things, they had a point. Their point was to point forward to Jesus, to prepare for Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, they're not important anymore, which shows these people are trying to do good things, but they've entirely left Jesus out of the picture. Do you realize you and I have that same danger? We, we can think of good things to do and, and not do it because we're connected with Jesus, but do it instead of our connection with Jesus. I've sensed this sometimes in myself. Have you ever felt this kind of sense that you've had a hard week, you've had a busy week, and you haven't been in prayer in the way that you've wanted to be, and you feel kind of this cloud, this assumption that God is probably not very happy with you and that things are probably not going to go very well for you. I know I have. Or I've seen sometimes people who give themselves in service to church and are just incredibly dedicated, but you see no joy, you see even resentment because they're doing it because they feel like they have to. And see, in both of these situations, it is fundamentally driven by a forgetfulness that the person that you are is you with Jesus. You who already are welcomed and accepted by God because you are with Christ. You know, it's also entirely possible and even easy to pursue experiences of God and closeness to God and do it entirely apart from Christ. We see that in the next warning in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. They, they, are, they are pursuing through, through not eating, through trying different techniques to get close to God. And that's a good thing. But notice how it is not being done the right way. He says it puffs them up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. That is Jesus. It's entirely possible to pursue a closeness to God and to leave Jesus completely out of it. I think I've shared before how um, there was a time when I was at college, at the Christian College, Wheaton College, where we had this unusual time, kind of a dramatic outpouring of people's emotions. It seems like the Spirit was really drawing people to Himself and helping people be aware of their sinfulness and their need of Him. And there were many good things that took place. But sometimes there were some people, and it seemed like something ugly had happened to them. Where, for those who hadn't had the same experience they had, there was this sense of superiority, condescension, 
arrogance. I've also seen other times in kind of less experiential circles, people who have driven deep into theology and can tell you the five points of Calvinism and can make all the distinctions that are theological and they sense that they are better than other people because they know the deep things of God. Now in both situations, where is their self-worth? It is not that they are them with Jesus. It's that they've had this experience that makes them feel better than others. They've fallen into religiosity. It's entirely possible to seek to improve yourself as a Christian and yet do it entirely apart from Jesus. We see that in the last paragraph. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. Referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. What Paul is saying is there are some people who have made this program of how to perfect themselves, but they've done it in the old way, where it's themselves working their way up, and not those who are in and with Jesus. There's a great line of Flannery O'Connor in one of her short stories, describes a person as someone who understands that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? That, that sometimes we can do good things. We can seek to be faithful, not because of our connection to Jesus, but so that we don't need Jesus. We can try to make ourselves better so that we don't have to confess, so that we don't have to depend, so that we can feel good about ourselves. And do you know what that is? That is a lie from hell. Because you can't. And I can't. And, and Paul, notice how he says, don't let anyone disqualify you. If you go too far down this path, you are turning away from what Jesus has for you. If you go to the just you doing these things, you will die. And so it's worth asking ourselves, to what extent are we falling into the trap of religiosity? There are signs that I think can help us to know if that's happening to us. Let me ask you, how do you view God in terms of his relationship to you? Do you feel kind of anxious about it? Like I was talking before, like there's kind of this, this cloud of maybe disapproval that you need to kind of work your way out of that maybe you feel sometimes a little bit like you are in the doghouse and you'd rather almost avoid God because you're just really not sure what he thinks of you if you get too close. I hope you understand that. That's not the Christian gospel. That's religiosity. That's a lie. And the more that you can understand that you are you with Jesus, already loved, already welcomed as a child of God, the more that that anxiety can move to a place of gratitude and joy for what God has already done. Well, let me ask you this. How do you view yourself? When we fall into the trap of religiosity, we will tend to vacillate between two different ways of viewing ourselves. Sometimes, when we're doing things the way that we feel like we should, there can be this sense of arrogance, this sense of superiority. But then the moment we fail, it will move from that to self-loathing to anger. Why am I being this way? Because everything depends on ourselves. 
But that's a lie. You are you with Jesus. In Him, you are already full. In Him, you are already righteous and glorious in God's eyes. And the more that we can remember that, the more that we can move into a comfortable, peaceful humility where we can acknowledge the ways that we are really messed up, if we're honest, but do that without fear because we know in Christ we're loved. Or let me ask this question. How do you view others? One of the surest signs of religiosity is when we find ourselves impatient and intolerant with others because maybe they're not smart enough or maybe they're not competent enough or maybe they're not kind enough or generous enough. Whatever thing is most important to us, when we see someone else failing in that, we will dismiss them, we will look down on them, we will be intolerant of them. Because we've again forgotten that it's not us, it's us with Jesus. And so we feel falsely superior. And it's only as we remember who we are, that we are people whom God has stooped down to pick up, that we then, instead of being defensive and protective, can meet people of all sorts with open arms and with love. Do you understand? Do you understand the difference, the distinction between Christianity and religion? You do not have to Work your way up to God. You do not have to make yourself worthy, and you can't. It is time to give up. God has recognized our estate, and he has stooped down lower than we can possibly imagine, as low as the cross, to take us and to change us and to make us whole in Christ and to bring us back to himself. And that's not something that you need to earn yourself towards. That's not something you need to qualify for. The only thing that we need to do is to open our hand and to receive that. To say, I give up on this project of climbing my way up. Lord, I want to take hold of what you have done for me. That's something that maybe some of you can even this morning do for the very first time. But for all of us, it's something that you and I need to do again and again and again. And so even now, I invite us to move towards confession and in confession to acknowledge our utter inability to save ourselves. And then as we acknowledge our failings, to take hold of the reality that we, what we cannot do, God has done for us, rescuing us and bringing us to himself in love. Let's spend a few minutes in silent confession.
Father, you see us in our foolish strivings, in our attempt to fix things that we cannot possibly fit, fix in our attempts to make ourselves into something that we cannot possibly succeed in. And yet, Lord, you invite us into rest. You invite us into joy. And you invite us into freedom. So, Lord, we acknowledge that we are failures when it comes to worshiping you as you deserve. That we don't love you as you deserve. That we do not obey you as you deserve. That we are so much more proud and selfish than we're willing to admit. And Lord, acknowledging that, we, we take hold of what you have done for us. Thank you that in Jesus we are whole. Thank you in Jesus that we are your children. Thank you in Jesus that you are making us into the people you have created us to be. We ask that more and more we would entrust ourselves to this reality, that we would more and more live into who we now are as us with Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here again the good news of the gospel from Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. Thanks be to God.